I'm Dr. Jamie Grant. I'm a bossy femme bottom, and this is Just Sex, Mapping Your Desire. Today, March 22nd, as the crisis in our world escalates around the mass spreading of the coronavirus, I want to offer sustenance and faith in us based on our years of work in trans and queer communities, keeping each other alive. And that is, we know more than we think we know. I don't mean this in the terrified conspiracy theory sense. I mean it in the grounded, connected, hopeful, we were never meant to survive sense. And that's an Audre Lorde reference for those who don't know it. Go and look that poem up right now. We were, indeed, never meant to survive. And because of this, we have been figuring out how to survive, well, in my lifetime for decades. But if we look back at the histories of our people, literally for centuries, my great-great-grandmother, for example, bore eight children in the height of the enforced starvation of the Irish people in the mid-1800s. I know her strength has helped me survive in the 20th and 21st centuries. Whether my addiction or the AIDS crisis as a 20-something queer living in the heart of D.C. or the gentrification and destruction of my neighborhoods and communities, and for certain, my lifelong slog with major depression. As Angela Davis once said, the problem with the Academy is that it believes it's the only place knowledge is created. Our survival strategies, our knowledge, our values, our knowledge, our relationships, our knowledge. We need to draw upon them as we survive this very difficult, often isolating period. So here is one offering I can make today. I believe there is strength and hope to be shared in telling our desire stories. Desire is almost always talked about in terms of sex, but I always say in my desire mapping workshops, desire is about the yearning to connect. Let's say that again for the people in the back. Desire is about the yearning to connect. And everyone has that in one form or another because we are human and connection is essential to our survival as a species. So today I wanna to talk about our brazenness, our memories of saying fuck it to all the advice we've gotten to make ourselves and our yearnings smaller, more socially acceptable or even invisible. Perhaps now is a moment that calls upon us to be more brazen, more shameless than ever. So here it is, some of my favorite memories of my own brazenness and memories of some of my favorite shameless hussies. I can't remember exactly how old I was when I was first told that I was being inappropriate around my gender and sexuality, but I was young pre-kindergarten maybe. Most of us remember these moments vividly because they are steeped in shame. Was it when my mother told me I couldn't pee in the woods among my best boy pals when we were playing? Obviously, one of the boy's mothers had told on me to my mom, and now I had to haul myself out of the woods, drag myself up the long hill to my house, because peeing beside my buddies was somehow terribly wrong a scandalous mark on my girlhood. My mother says that when she told me I had to come home to pee, I looked at her, incredulous, and said, every time? 
because the thing is, none of the mothers were heaping shame upon their sons for pulling out their tiny wieners, having a quick wee, and going on with their day of play. Nobody else had to go home after this momentous revelation. Just me. And so began the marking of me as different, less than, as somehow physically fragile or vulnerable in the eyes of these boys with whom I was constantly jockeying for power, space, and playground supremacy. And I was pissed. I resisted. I often continued to squat and pee in their presence. And just as often, I continued to beat them at whatever game we were playing. Perhaps this day was the beginning of my life as a gender and sex resistor, a shameless hussy. When I look back over my journey as a nascent lesbian coming of age in the 70s, it's full of moments like this, when some authoritative voice or institution in my life attempts to smack me back into line around gender and sex, and I simply refuse or smack back. And when I look around at my queer, queer life, I realize that this is how I've chosen beloveds to accompany me on my journey. They are all resistors. Some of them identify as LGBTQ, many as queer or trans or gender expansive, but not everyone. Some identify as cis or heterosexual and are carving out lives of resistance within these often confining, more mainstream territories. Ergo, I live a rich life in a community full of hussies and self-proclaimed hoes. And through this podcast, I get to revel in our stories of brazenness every day. One of my favorite stories in season one came from Zan Chiam, the director of the Gender Identity Program at the International Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, and Transgender World Association. Zan described being rebuffed when he took a chance and expressed his attraction to a friend. Despite the rejection, he low-key pursued his crush at a conference after they appeared to be noticing and not noticing each other all day long at several events. When the two were later walking back to their respective hotels, Zahn simply took the fork that led to his friend's hotel without a word instead of moving off toward his. And minutes later, when they went in for the parting hug, he held on to his friend, and suddenly it was on. They stood frozen in that hotel hallway, literally, for an hour, holding each other. I mean, I live for stories like this. Everything in our culture conspires to tell us that we should not pursue our lusts, that we are not worthy of love, of passion, of great sex. As a Singaporean trans man, Zan had to emphatically reject the wisdom, quote unquote, of countless authorities in order to claim himself and his desire in the moments he was describing. There's a point in the podcast where he remembers sitting on a sidewalk afterwards, and he could still feel the imprint of this man's body on his body, because they had eventually moved into his friend's hotel room and then held and kissed each other for hours. He remembers telling him, I absolutely adore you as the sun came up. Zan talks about this as one of the most intense and passionate experiences of his life, noting, and we didn't even have sex. Didn't they? I thought what he described was possibly the best sex I had heard of in ages. 
of taking the fork despite having been rejected, going in for the hug, and then, wild astonishment, his friend started moving his hands to caress Zan's arms, his chest, and finally stepping into the privacy of the friend's room, kissing each other's necks, arms, hands, torso, feet, until dawn. On my list of brazen hoes, Zahn has definitely made it into the top five. When I remember and experience my own moments of brazenness, I feel a kind of reckless joy. There was that time, for instance, in 1979, when I didn't have a date to the senior prom. I was out underage drinking with a pal, and I looked across the bar at a tall Irish guy rocking a tool belt. I said to my friend, you see that guy over there? And my friend said, what about him? He's like 20. I said, I'm taking him to the prom. And what I remember about the ensuing negotiation was this. I had clearly communicated I was ready to have sex with Mr. Tall and Brawny by the time we were in the middle of our third beer. And then I said, you know what I thought when I first saw you? He leaned in all sexy and muscly and perfectly 21. He said, no, what? I said, that's the guy I want to take to my prom. He instantly demurred. I mean, he was full grown, an electrician, and high school was already a blurry dot in his rearview mirror. He said, I'm sorry, but I'm way past prom dates. I leaned back into him all 17 and fearless and reeking of lust. And I said, oh, that's a shame. Three weeks later, geeky me brought my hot electrician lover to the prom. Now, I have had roaring laughs with friends this year as I recounted my brazen hoe prom procurement dialogue. Laughter so hard that one or more of us had to run to the bathroom to pee. You see what I did there, right? I love that 17-year-old girl whom everyone, everyone was constantly admonishing, trying to get her to be less, want less. When I look back over the many fits and starts of my sex story, I love myself most when I am on fire and in hot pursuit. And the thing is, brazenness grows brazenness. When I finally started pursuing women in my 20s, I remember crushing on a shy butch who worked at the local lesbian health clinic. One day, I just showed up at her workplace. She came down to the lobby to meet me and looked sort of confused or surprised. She said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm here for lesbian services. Or that time years later, burning with desire as I sat at a community event with a longtime crush who was an accomplished top in the BDSM community. She said, what are you thinking about? I said, I was thinking I've never had the daddy that I truly deserve. Or that time in my 40s, when an activist I had longed for over many years put their hand on my thigh during a butch femme workshop at a national conference. When we were walking out of the ballroom, I turned to him and said, so is that it? Are we going to do anything about this? As our various friends started to swirl around us, oblivious to what was going on, he said, 
I'll come up to your room later. And I said, that's great, but don't be too late because I've already been waiting a long, long time. In a world that tells us as women and girls, femmes, queer and trans folk, black, brown and indigenous people, people with disabilities, people living with HIV, fat people, non-binary people, that no one, no one will desire us, especially not if we make ourselves vulnerable by revealing what we really want. Pursuing our desire is a profoundly liberating act. Sometimes that hot pursuit leads to great sex, and sometimes just the act of it, of believing in ourselves and our right to proclaim our lust, to have, hold, connect, kiss, worship, or fuck, leads to much more, to our power, our laughter, our beloveds, our very best life. Hey, it's time for that quick break in the pod where I thank my sponsors. You know, it's not easy to get sexual liberation work funded, and I can't thank these generous, visionary sponsors enough. The Freeman Foundation, centering Eros and sexual liberation in the LGBTQ movement for justice. The Wild Geese Foundation, working to defend human rights and grow food sovereignty. Elizabeth Scott, a longtime mapper and philanthropist based in Minneapolis. And finally, Grinder for Equality, leveraging the power of our social and sexual connections for LGBTQ human rights around the world. Thanks, everyone. That's a wrap on emergency podcast number one. I hope you are well. I hope you are breathing. I hope you are staying connected to the people, nature, and daily practices that help you remember yourself, your strengths, your brazenness, your worth. More emergency podcasts are in the works as we grow emergent strategies together for surviving and thriving in this challenging moment and the next. I want to suggest that while our in-person interactions are contracting, our phone, text, email, snail mail, and video connections must expand. And we can be expansive in them. We can be brazen, vulnerable, ever more true to ourselves. We can still want more from this world and from each other. We can still want. Hey, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please head over to iTunes and give us a zillion stars. Send a link to your friends. Talk us up. If you'd like to respond to the show or stay connected, find us on social media under Just Sex Podcast and Desire Mapping. And if you have questions for me about your desire map or comments, you can email me at justsexpod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you.